You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. On today's show, we have two festivals, not the behemoth festivals like True False or Art in the Park, but smaller niche festivals that highlight both local and national talent and are a reminder that the city in which we live is a veritable cornucopia of the arts. Later in the show, the Odyssey Chamber Music Series artistic director Ayako Surata will join me in the studio along with the internationally renowned pianist Dr. Wei Yi Yang to talk about this weekend's Plowman Chamber Music Festival and Competition, which is now in its ninth year. First, though, we take a tour of the Mizzou New Play Series with two of that festival's playwrights, directors and actors, Taylor Sklainer and Blake Willoughby. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank now, you. I know that we are here to talk about the Mizzou New Play Series, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. But before we get into the nitty gritty of the festival, there is something fascinating about both of you that I wanted to linger on for a few minutes. Now, although you are both steeped in the world of theatre, one of your undergraduate degrees, Taylor, was in chemistry. That's and right. Blake, one of yours was in political science. Yes. And indeed, you are heading into the world of politics and running for the Columbia Public Schools School Board in just a couple of weeks weeks. So my first question to both of you is, how do you think these different worlds, science and art and art and politics, influence and assist your career? Oh, well, I, I for one, uh, I for one, uh, see, see a lot of impact. A lot of, uh, what I write about as a playwright has to do with the sciences and the, the, uh, big questions that science lead us to. And, uh, just just the intersection of that with the arts. Um, I'm particularly interested in theater that looks at climate change or ecological theater that looks at these huge, huge questions and says, you know, how do we move forward? So that's definitely an, an impact that I've seen in, in my background in science. I, I think it's a fascinating intersection where art and science meet. Do you think that your theater writing or creating a play can help understanding of a particular subject? Do you see that as part of your mission in life? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the more that the more that we can use uh, arts, things that are engaging and entertaining to watch, uh, in order to help educate, the the better off we'll be. And not just not just educate, um, which can get very like didactic, like let me tell you about, but 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 also to to show stories of people who are impacted by things like climate change, um, and and help help move people to to action. Right. And what about politics? Do you find that a, a background in acting is useful when you're on stage that you can speak more clearly organize your thoughts better does that help Blake oh yes it definitely does and it helps with kind of presentation and knowing to kind of scan the room when you're talking for me a lot of it comes into most of my work is in facilitating dialogues through theater about diversity and inclusivity issues and so that's a lot of what my playwriting and what I see theater being a great medium for is having conversations around social issues that are happening in our community do you see your future career being in playwriting and using that skill to uh, further conversations or do you see 
politics thing more what's going to pull you into the future with I a think, side of plays <laughs> i think it's kind of both and just kind of juggling the two right now it's kind of the same thing for me being a doctoral student at the university of missouri and running for columbia public school board has been a really fun and exciting time and i'm really looking forward to hopefully after april 2nd being elected and serving on the school board in that capacity now one of your other recent involvements has been on the columbia substance abuse advisory commission which highlighted for you the challenges that substance abuse creates for children so when you come across this kind of critical situation do you look for a way that you can focus attention on it through the arts is your is your response to think well i could write a play about this or we could create some dramatic scenario that helps people understand no yeah it's something that i have thought about while serving being the vice chair of that commission one of the things that i do is uh, i i manage our interactive theater troupe on campus that kind of tries to show these uh, areas where you can have difficult dialogues around difficult topics like talking about religion or gender or sex for our university campus students. And so it's something that I have been thinking about when dealing with substance abuse for our kids. Interactive troupe? What, what is that? Our interactive theater troupe. So what happens is they perform a little bit of a piece. And then at the end of that piece, uh, audience members can come in and intervene and change the outcome of what happened. And that's only on campus, or did you do that in the city too? We do that in the city when we're requested to, but majority of our funding comes from the Division of Inclusion, Diversity, okay. and Equity, so we do it there. Wow, that would be a great thing to do when we're doing a fund drive at KOPN. <laughs> you come into an interactive scenario where we're all going out asking for money, and then you can change the situation and see how we can do it better. Anyway, on with the festival. So, Taylor, give us a little bit of background to the festival. Uh, the Mizzou so New Play Series. The festival is an annual thing that happens. The Mizzou New Play Series happens uh, every year and has been for many years. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's it's a really important part of the Missouri Playwrights Workshop that runs out of, out of Mizzou. And it's a week-long festival of new plays written by Mizzou-affiliated playwrights. It, it will be running from Wednesday through Sunday, um, with matinees on Saturday and Sunday. April and the 3rd, every, right? April the 3rd yeah. through the 7th with matinees on Saturday and Sunday. And every night is different. So uh, some nights it will be like a full full length play. I know uh, one of my plays is a full length piece that's like the, the one thing for the evening. Whereas other performances, other um, the matinees, for instance, are uh, a series of short plays. Uh, and it's really um, an opportunity for for new and emerging playwrights to uh, get their hands dirty in the rehearsal room and, and really work through how to develop their play and to get them in, in front of an audience and, and see how uh, an audience responds to this new work. So it's really helpful for the playwrights. It's also really fun for an audience to get to be the first people to see you know, a, a new story being born. Now, I think there are 11 playwrights whose work will be featured, plus this work by MU professor Dr. David Crespi. Some of you have multiple works. You are an incredible overachiever, Taylor. You have five <laughs> plays in the festival, I think. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so tell um, us about the selection process. How do works get chosen for the festival? Uh, so... We do an open submission. We encourage, especially like those who are taking playwriting classes and who are who are sort of already honing those skills, to submit their work. And then uh, the managing directors and Dr. Crespi, we we go through and, and read and and make choices to the to the best of our ability. It is a bit atypical to have somebody with uh, five pieces in there, but that was sort of an exception this year because of uh, the success that I, I had at the the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. I had six works. 
that were recognized at that festival earlier in, in January. And typically it's like, okay, well, if, you know, you get an award at this festival, we'll just, we'll, we'll put it into the, into the Mizunu play series. But so that was, that was part of the reason why there are so many pieces of mine that, that got in there. Just backing up a little bit, you mentioned the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. Tell us a little bit about that and how big a deal it is to to playwrights, young playwrights. Uh, it is it is just an incredible opportunity for for young playwrights uh, in undergraduate or, or graduate school. Uh, the Kennedy Center, if you don't know, is run. Uh, it's a, a huge center out in Washington D.C. that does stuff nationally all over the place. It's a, a uh, incredible, well, well-recognized uh, establishment, and what they're doing with the um, Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival is going into these universities all over. We, they they bring universities together in each of the eight regions for uh, a regional festival where they get to share work. It goes uh, much larger than just playwriting. There's all kinds of like invited productions and workshops and everything, but part of it is is the playwriting program in which they select several pieces being 10 minutes, one act, full lengths, what have you, to be recognized. And they'll do readings of those uh, throughout the festival and then select a few of those to, to go to Washington, D.C. And those playwrights get to go to Washington, D.C. And, and work with professional dramaturgs, actors, directors, etc. and get to see their work put on in a like professional capacity as a, as a reading. So it's really an incredible opportunity to get to see how professionals work with new scripts and to really, really uh, break your teeth in, in, a, in a way that a lot of undergraduates don't have that opportunity to do at their home institutions. And so you can get chosen for the regional finals, but you can also get chosen for the national finals, right? And some of your work has been chosen for national as well as regional. I had I had a couple. So a couple of my pieces were finalists of the, like, they don't use the term winner, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the top place for the region and were considered national semi-finalists, but they select a smaller group out of those nationally for which I was not chosen. But. Okay. And so of the plays that are being presented at the Mizzou New Play Series, I think there are eight, seven or eight that have, that have been chosen by the Kennedy Center previously. Is that correct? Something yeah, like I think yes. about about eight regionally. I think we're went went to that regional festival and ha- had had readings and and got to um, work with. So if your play gets chosen and it gets it gets played in Washington, you've got professional actors and dramaturgs working with you. Is it possible then that an agent picks it up or a management company and that it gets what What's the process then for it to be rolled out across the country? People pay you royalties <laughs> to use your play. I mean, there there is always that possibility. There's no like you know firm firm route, but especially uh, since it is it is at the collegiate level, um, a, a big step is just being recognized by graduate schools for a lot of people. And like it, you know, it's a it's a huge uh, it's a huge honor to be one of the very very few people who are selected to go to the the Kennedy Center. And so that can be a really a really big boon to some of those. Uh, graduate programs that are looking for really strong playwrights. Um, I, I would not rule out that an agent might, you know, 
see a young playwright and pick them up. You also get unique opportunities, like Zarya Moore won last year and went, went to the finals, and then this year we uh, produced that show right at the beginning of our season went through Life and Lit, and we took actually her show to our regional festival for the Kennedy Center. So there's uh, opportunities that go at the national level, but also us as a university try to really support when those awards happen to showcase those shows to our community. And when you're looking at plays to do for your season, are you looking through some of those plays that have been presented by the Kennedy Center to present even if they aren't written by local playwrights is that something that is within the schedule of Mizzou for the Mizzou new play series I don't think so uh, when it comes to the selection process of our season on the, our main stage for that's really the faculty and the department itself that are making those decisions so I don't know really what their process fully is on that right. one Taylor, you've been to Washington, D.C. for one of these events, have you, and seen your play performed? I have. I've been to the Kennedy Center a couple of times for sort of a, a slightly different thing, but I, I uh, got to workshop one of my plays as uh, at the Undergraduate Playwrights Workshop in, in D.C. Um, a couple years ago and, and sit around a table for four days or so with you know professional dc area actors and a director and and they worked through it and said oh this this part's really great hey i don't know what you're trying to do here you know that sort of stuff <laughs> and and it's really really humbling and, and honoring and uh, I, I it was an incredible opportunity did it change how you write plays afterwards from the critical feedback you had Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely picked up some really helpful ways of looking at things and and tools to use as I'm writing. And it's always just, I mean, you you can't quite anticipate what a script is like out loud until you get to hear it out loud. And that's, that's one of the things that, you know, the, the Mizunu play series is, is really phenomenal for is being able to move it to that next step and, and, uh, move from the page to the stage. <laughs> so when then the audiences see the new plays at the Mizzou New Play Series, have they already been workshopped or is this their first outing and the workshops happen after the plays have been seen? Generally, there is uh, some sort of revision process that has gone on. Like I said, a lot of, a lot of the, the playwrights are coming from playwriting classes. So Many of them have been workshopped at least through that class process, and and you know we we suggest revisions to happen between then and and also the production, the reading. Um, <laughs> there isn't a ton of time within the the rehearsal process for Mizuno Play Series itself to like make huge changes. So generally within the process itself, you've got about two rehearsals and then a performance so it's like you know you get a reading to hear it out loud and you can maybe think about changes and characters and that sort of thing and then you get to stage it and see it on, on its feet and then it's performing so there's not as much time to make the changes but there are things like i've got you know a pages of notes as i'm watching watching people perform this that i'm like okay i need to address that uh, uh, you know as we as we move forward so yeah are you on the review committee are you one of the people that makes the choices on on some of the plays? Yes, yeah. What uh, for you? What makes a good play? Is it the dialogue? Is it the is it the subject matter? Is it how things resolve? What are you looking for in, in really, making a decision? It really is kind of a, a melting pot of all of those things. You want to see? I mean, at the most basic, you know, are they? Are they writing cleanly? Are there are there typos all over the place? Are they putting care into the script itself? Um, and then at the higher level, you know, what are what are the big ideas and questions that they're asking? Are they getting at that sort of un, untouchable seed of something new? Um, and then in between there, you have the the craft. You know, how are people uh, 
putting putting things together, using traditional structure or upsetting that structure and to what end. And so those are all craft things that we'll look at. And uh, we also want to provide opportunity when we when we see potential there and, and want to help new artists grow. Now, you are, as you said, you're the managing director of the Mizzou Playwrights Workshop. How does that feed into the new play series? Um, so so the Missouri Playwrights Workshop is sort of a, a bigger thing in, in which the Missouri New Play Series is uh, a part of that happens once a year. But the Missouri Playwrights Workshop also has readings that happen every Tuesday night in the Memorial Union, uh, except for during the summer, in which young playwrights can come like we were talking about sort of the workshop process that happens this is this is part of that for students that are um, taking classes and things you can bring your script in and hear it out loud just as a as a cold reading and it's often that that initial step to hear your work out loud and start thinking about how you can revise and workshop and, and edit things and there are also uh, sometimes we will have other events that happen as as part of the Missouri playwrights workshop uh, in conjunction with the Lanford Wilson conference that happened last year, we had a staged reading of Mary uh, Mary Sue Price's new play, and so there are things like that. When we when we have the opportunity, we'll we'll pull in new playwrights, professional playwrights, and do readings and things. Um, Dr. Crespi has been doing readings of his new work that he wrote on his Fulbright <laughs> as part of the right. uh, Missouri Playwrights Workshop as well. Are, are all the playwrights in the festival Mizzou theater department majors or could they be chemistry or they I mean they could be chemistry we even have um well you mentioned Dr. Crespi is well reading one of his plays we also have a playwright who works for MU Extension we will even sometimes pull in playwrights from like the St. Louis area or Kansas City area um not not always but we we try to stay engaged with those communities we just had so many Mizzou playwrights that had, had submitted work this year that really most of them are are Mizzou students this year so these are dramatic readings these aren't learn the script and act it out or are, are they reading it or are they have they memorized all those lines just it's just readings and so most of the time what you'll see when you come to any of the shows they'll have the music stands their binders will be on it we really try to push the directors not to have too much staging because we don't we want the words really to be what the audience is hearing because we do see it as a a service for our playwrights to see their words on stage actually read out loud because there is a different dynamic that gives than just reading it on the the script yeah absolutely so Blake you have two plays in the series one of which the white bovina received recognition from the Kennedy Center American College Festival and was one of the regional finalists for their 10-minute play festival. And the play is an adaptation of The White Buffalo Woman of the Lakota, which is one of their most sacred stories. Tell me what drew you to that story. I was uh, just interested in reading mythology and things like that and so I got into reading some Lakota mythology and this year's uh, our regional festival happened where it was at uh, out up in South Dakota, right near the where the Lakota tribe is now uh, located. And so I really felt it would be important just to kind of write this script and see if they would accept it and have it up there because of recognizing the fact that we do stand on traditional land that was owned by Indian nations and we are right next door to where they are right now. So Right. And, and in the intro to the play, you are very clear that only a woman of First Nation descent may play the holy goddess, that no prop of a pipe may be present on stage and that all productions are required before the play begins to recognize the ancestors of the land on which the production is being performed. And I wonder, do you, if you have First Nation heritage or what makes you 
comfortable retelling this story, which is held so sacred? I personally don't. And so something that I really strive to do is I did a lot of research and a lot of work into trying to make sure that I didn't not understand that story and why it was deeply connected. And something that is in this adaptation is I really didn't change much of the story beyond the fact that it is all women instead of it predominantly being all the all the characters in the story in the mytho- original mythology were men except for the white buffalo woman. Mm-hmm. And so really changing it to be all women and really holding into this factor that the white buffalo woman should be played by a woman of First Nation descent. And then the other stipulation that I put in there is that the rest of the women at minimum, if you're not able to get all of the characters to be of First Nation descent, descent, to be played by women of color. Taylor, you very kindly sent me two of your place to read. Um, you sent me Fission, which covers a lot of ground. <laughs> and it raises many questions. And it reads more like a work of poetry. Again, when you read it on the page as to when you hear it out loud, I'm kind of interested to see what it sounds like staged rather than when I'm reading it. Um, and you also sent me Missing Parts, which is uh, funny and poignant and has a little bit of, it reminded me of Lincoln in the Bardo, the George Sanders uh, novel um, that won lots of prizes. It kind of had that sense of otherworldliness about it that I enjoyed. So you clearly write across multiple genres where are you most comfortable oh i my favorite way to write is pulling in that that poetry i mean we talked about sort of the intersection of science and theater but i really think of myself as writing at the intersection of science and theater and poetry and so and that's i think something that's uh very clear within like fission which um tell us about fission because it's very complex um well for those of you that, that can't see the the script out there, uh, when you when you look at it on the page, you can uh, see that different different characters speak in different poetic forms, and that's something I've always been really really fascinated with with playing with the sort of almost like a in, in the way that Shakespeare would have you know prose and po- like uh, verse and that sort of thing to to communicate things like character status and you know how upset they are at a time or something like that. I'm I'm trying to play with those same sorts of ideas, but in a in a way that uses modern poetic forms. And so um, there are some characters who well, one character does does speak an iambic pentameter, whereas one character who is going down a sort of drug trip uh, starts his language just starts, starts to fall apart and then sort of E.E. E. Cummings almost kind of form. So that's that's me uh, playing with language and trying to use use language to communicate these characters. But the, I mean, the big idea of it is taking this idea that we are frozen two minutes until midnight. We are we are stuck at a time where anxiety is the highest, as there is a, a looming nuclear threat. It's a it's a very direct metaphor for the atomic clock, the, the nuclear clock. That when I when I wrote this, it had just been moved up um, as as talks with uh, North Korea were were getting dangerous, um, and we were at that that closest point that we have ever been to midnight um, since, you know, 1950 or something. (laughs) Um, I mean, one of the characters, it does, it does halfway through, suddenly Shakespeare is very apparent. I forget which of the characters is, but someone starts speaking in a, a, I guess, is that, is that iambic? I don't know. I don't know my terms, but (laughs) suddenly it feels very Shakespearean. The language completely changes and I feel like I've gone back 400 years. (laughs) 
to, to Shakespeare's time. Yeah, so the, the character you're referring to is the philanthropist, using the term ironically, because they're <laughs> sort of tied up in, in the economics of nuclear energy. And uh, so I've, I've made, made that character somebody who is using this, this almost Shakespearean language because they're all about the surface and the putting things out there and looking nice and money and opulence and yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, uh, it has that, that, that sort of rhythm to it to, to convey that, that sense of character. And when is Fission on? Which of the dates can people see Fission? That will be on Wednesday. The first, the first night? The first opening night, night. Yep, April and, 3rd. And, and Missing Parts? That one is on Sunday, our Sunday matinee. And Blake, when is uh, the White Bovina on? That will be a Saturday matinee. Saturday matinee. Okay. Is there anything else we need to cover? I'm going to give some dates, everything before we end, and how people can book tickets. Um, I, I think I mentioned briefly one of the one of the plays is is Dr. Crespi's Fulbright Project, which is another really really fascinating part of of the Mizuno play series this year. Um, and we've also got uh, that Sunday evening. We're doing an additional show. We don't necessarily do Sunday evening shows uh, often, but we we included a one man show that is. Uh, it's called Golgotha and is a tribute to like the um, Jewish cemetery in Thessaloniki that recently got vandalized. It's sort of a, a, a tribute to, to that that um, rising anti-Semitism. So. The Mizzou New Play Series runs from Wednesday the 3rd to Sunday the 7th of April with evening performances each night at 7.30 plus 2pm matinees on both Saturday and Sunday. Each play is only performed once, so depending on which performance you attend, you will see a different play or set of plays. Tickets are $5, presumably for each performance or each session and can be purchased from the box office before a performance or by calling 573-882-PLAY. Thank you so much, Taylor Scleder and Blake Willoughby. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Ayako Tsuruta, pianist and artistic director for the Odyssey Chamber Music Series and the Plowman Chamber Competition and Festival. And she will be with Dr. Wei Yi Yang, an international concert pianist and associate professor of piano at Yale. We will be right back after these few messages. Speaking of the arts, last night I went to a wonderful recital of Brahms and Schumann at First Baptist Church, which was the first concert in a weekend of chamber music recitals by world-class musicians who are here in Columbia for the 9th Plowman Chamber Music Competition and Festival. And I am so delighted to have with me in the studio the pianist who performed last night's recital, Dr. Wei Yi Yang, who is also the Associate Professor of Piano at Yale, and with him the Artistic Director for both the Odyssey Chamber Music Series and the Plowman Competition, Ayako Suruta. Did I pronounce that correctly? Perfect. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Welcome to the show, Ayako and Dr. Yang. Yeah, thank you for having us. So, Dr. Yang, I have to start out by asking you about your work with one of my favourite British actors, Miriam Margoyles, who Harry Potter fans may know as Professor Sprout from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Mm. Secrets, but that's not what you were working with her on. How did you come to work with Miriam? Well, um, she was on tour uh, for this one-woman play called The Dickens Women, and uh, it was a fascinating project. I actually didn't know until someone made the call, and then she needed a a pianist, um, and this was uh, a kind of incidental interplay between music and theater. And uh, so that's how I got to meet her. Mm-hmm. So Dickens' Women is, a, is something that she wrote in which she portrays 23 of Dickens' best love characters. Correct. And then you created the music 
to go with her performance? Uh, create. Uh, I was given snippets, fragments of music of that period from Dickens' period. So there are British folk songs and there are some actually mm, bits from Handel, just you know, music of the time and then um, put it, you know, kind of you know, on a modern spin. Okay. <laughs> and that was at the Yale British Centre. Centre for British Art. Yes. Right? yes. I didn't know you had one. Maybe it'll be the Yale Centre for Brexit Art. No, no but <laughs> give it time. <laughs> so I, I, I'm also a fan of interdisciplinary projects. I love the, you know, where art and science meet and where art and literature meet. And I read that you like to curate things in that interdisciplinary zone too. So what, what draws you? What, what do you like about that zone? Well, I, I, I feel um, as a musician... Um, oftentimes, I, I personally need to look at um, other other types of you know mediums of art, visual being you know what I think of when I have something like Renato's or Mussorgsky, obvious. And then you know, as I was saying, that uh, working with the theater people in the theater often share some new lights on kind of the rhetorics of um, of playing music and looking at music. So. To say that, I, I, and I, one, another aspect is literature. I mean, we all read, but very often there are some, some writers and some, some composers are more kindred in spirit than the others. So I find this kind of, uh, it feeds me. In, in how I look at and think about music and how I would play. I was thinking last night while I was listening to you play and, and you have obviously the dates of the composition. You were playing Schumann, a, a work that was mm. written in 1836 and mm. 1838 and Brahms from 1892. And I thought, you know, what I would love to know as I'm listening to you mm. is what was happening in the world at that time, like a little paragraph. And no one does this, you know, what novels were released that year? What were some of the major world events? So as you're listening to this beautiful music, you can imagine the, the scenario in which these composers are creating their music, maybe what their influences were mm -hmm. from the time. I think mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting, that crossover of uh, when you're listening historically, thinking historically at the same, at the same time. I'm glad. <laughs> Ayaka, Dr. Yang is one of three internationally renowned musicians, um, along with horn player Dale Clevenger and violinist Lara St. John, who are in town this weekend to be judges for the Plowman Chamber Music Competition. Tell us a little bit about the competition and how it all got started. Wow. Well, <laughs> time really does fly. I can't <laughs> believe that it's the ninth Plowman Competition. And the reason why I say this is because it takes place every two years and it initially started from 2006. It was initially started by the Missouri Symphony actually and the ownership transferred to Odyssey Chamber Music Series and we've been um, holding it since. But um, yeah, it's been wonderful because of the support that we get from the community of Colombia, and without which this is not possible. It's a huge undertaking. It's I would say it's a musical equivalent to about True Falls um, Festival kind of. It's not um, such magnitude, but it's big enough. But I mean, you're so. bringing in so many musicians, all these young ensembles that are coming in. I mean, they have what have you got? Seventy or eighty musicians that are in town this yeah, weekend. That's right. Plus the judges, plus mm -hmm. all the guests that come in. But this was really your brainchild in the beginning. You, this was your vision. That's right. So I've always had this idea once. 
we got comfortable in Colombia that we would start the chamber music series, and the performance was necessary to, uh, to show the community that this can be done um, with the local musicians. And then I thought it was also necessary to show just how, how important the quality or how well the quality can be, and that's where the plumbing kind of fits in. And chamber music competition is something that I also personally grew up with. I had a piano trio for seven years with the same members, which is a little bit rare for high school students, actually. But um, we went to Fish Off, uh, which is this big chamber music competition that still takes place in Indiana. And we had so much fun. We had pillow fights. And it's not just the music, you see, because you travel with your musicians and you get to know each other beyond music. And so this experience really uh, spoke to me. And I thought, you know, it'd be really great if we can actually help this I don't know, um, get the musicians together and help them grow. So that was the genesis of the plumbing competition. But I mean, you're in a small town in the middle of Missouri. <laughs> I mean, how, how much, it must have seemed like a gigantic mountain that you had to climb to make yes. it happen. On the other hand, though, I actually looked at it as an advantage. Because if you go to New York City, do you know how expensive it is to stay in a hotel? That's true. Compared to Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a relatively safe town. So I not, I don't necessarily have to worry about you know safety. <laughs> so far, it's been okay. <laughs> We're all touching. <laughs> yeah. So and everybody is very friendly here, and the small Kalisha town that it is, we have a variety of nice restaurants that you know people enjoy. So actually, all these uh, contestants that come from all over the nation, they love being actually in Colombia. So there are many returning ensembles too over the years. So so this is kind of interesting. So this year you have 37, you received 37 applications from chamber ensemblers across the country. Mm -hmm. And then you narrowed that down to a final 16 who will play at the festival in Colombia this weekend. What can you tell us about those final 16? Well, every year is different. Some years are strong uh, overall. Some years are strong in one particular area. This year, we had really, really strong piano and strings. I mean, very strong. And not just in small numbers, but in really big numbers. So it'll be very interesting to see what will happen. (laughs) Because the previous years, we've had really strong um, brass and winds, mostly wind groups, actually. But it's going to be tough for the judges. Thank you, (laughs) Wei. That's why we have you. <laughs> so how did you get the 37 down to 16? Because the judges that are here are only looking at the final 16. What was That's the right. process to get down to 16? So what they have to do is to compile a DVD preliminary audition. And uh, they have to submit by a certain deadline, after which there are two other judges, actually, who will screen the DVDs. And uh, in addition to that, I do this myself, too. I'm the, basically, what do you call this? Um... What's the word for adjudicator or the? Uh, if there's an even number, <laughs> oh okay, tiebreaker. Okay. I'm the tiebreaker. Okay, that's it. So the and then we narrow down to the six, basically the top sixteen were chosen this year. Actually, we usually have fifteen ensembles, but because the strings and pianos were so strong, we really felt that the sixteenth was really deserving. Unfortunately, there's a little bit of a kink. One ensemble just withdrew two days oh, ago. Okay. The cellist hurt his arm, and so unfortunately, they're unable to join. So we're back to 15, which, okay. which is great. 
exactly what you wanted. Yeah. It's like overbooking a plane, you know, assume that some people aren't going to show up. So, you know, overbook an ensemble, somebody will That's get right. sick. Yeah. Um, and so the job of the judges this weekend, the three judges, is to get that down to, from 16 down to five. Yeah, it's tough. So it's semi-final to day is all day Saturday at First Baptist Church. You start mm-hmm. at 9.30 in the morning and end at 5.30 and you just listen to the 16, uh, or the 15, sorry, ensembles and then you choose the five who will then perform the day after on Sunday at right. the Missouri Theatre. Is, is there a way for the audience to, to choose their favourite too? Is there a, an audience prize? Yes. So the audience prize is not for the semi-finals, but actually for the finals. So if you come to the theatre, you get to choose your favourite ensemble. And what's different about this year is that we have Odyssey Award. So uh, being the director for Odyssey Chamber Music Series, believe it or not, I actually get a lot of calls from all these agencies based in New York City. Some of the top artists, they want to perform in Colombia, which is really flattering, but we just don't have the budget. And then I thought, well, I want to keep this within Colombia as in promoting the local artists. I mean, why not bring back our own laureates and incorporate them into our series? I mean, what better way to promote young artists that way? And I think that's part of the reason why we had such a huge draw. Because in addition to the $5,000 grand prize, we're also offering $2,000 the following year to come back and perform in our series. Kind of as an honorarium. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as well as the 5000 grand prize, you have two 2000 first prizes, one for each of the sections. So you divide the competitors into piano and strings mm-hmm. and then brass, brass winds and percussion. Brass wind and percussion. OK, so you have $2,000 for each of those categories. And then you have some honorable mention $500 awards, too. So that's, a, that's really a considerable prize purse that you're offering. Is that is that part of the success of a chamber music festival, is it? Because uh, I know that kind of works in the art festival world too. Like, how, mu- how much are the prizes? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it helps. <laughs> um, but I think actually that the success is really behind how well the community is behind the event. And, you know, it's really the people that make the festival work, as you very well know, mm-hmm. um, from Arts in the Park and all that. So I think people first, money, you know, it's nice. But even the contestants, I mean, when you see them interact with each other, you can actually see they're good friends. I mean, over the years, they've met each other in the various competitions. And, and this kind of reminds me of one piano competition. This is not quite chamber music, but I did a piano competition in Erie, Pennsylvania, many, many years ago. And I can tell you the contestants back then are professionals now. But to think that we were all in pajamas and literally <laughs> throwing pillows at each other, it's kind of, you know, a fun talk. Right. Yeah. So so each ensemble must have between three and six players That's and right. they all have to be interested in pursuing a career in music or already be in music but not at a professional level so if you have any management mm-hmm. you aren't eligible to enter That's right? right. so tell me a little bit about the rules for the repertoire each ensemble can present does it have to be classical music so we were asking them to submit uh, these two distinct styles uh, at least 50 years apart and the reason why we say this is because if you are a woodman or brass ensembles 
well, the repertoire in the Baroque and classical era is very limited. And in the contemporary world, well, this is 2019. And if you think about uh, 1900s, that's a long time ago. But then there is a whole span of 119 years of music already. So we felt that it was important to recognize the dif- uh, distinct styles within the contemporary eras. And that's where the 50-year line was drawn. But I think... More importantly, the ensembles will do really well if they know their strengths and what kind of pieces really work well for their ensembles. So it can be new music. I mean, does it have to be a recognized composer? That, that, oh, it can be anything. Okay. Absolutely anything. It has to be printed <laughs> and published. <laughs> okay, and is, and is there a defined list of what instruments may be included in ensemble? Could they, say, turn up with an Indonesian gamelan or a Vietnamese danbo, which is like kind of a one-string zither? I mean, are there limitations? It has to be certain instruments? or We haven't had any applications, but <laughs> if we did, I mean, I actually would welcome them. The only stipulation is that we have a very strict 20-minute audition time and that we recommend that they don't take more than two minutes to set up. So that kind of puts limits on things because if you start bringing all these different instruments, well, it takes time to set up. And this is the part of the reason why we haven't had percussion instruments since season one. Because season one, we brought in uh, four marimbas, actually from Mizu. It was a terrific group, but to set up, it actually took a little bit of time. And so... Yeah. It's tricky. That would be difficult. Yeah. A Vietnamese dambo is, is like just one long thing with a string on it. And that'd be, that'd be pretty easy. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> I have one of I look forward to the application. To <laughs> <laughs> so the 16 ensembles, they come from, they're all from education institutes, so they don't have to be in education. They currently. don't have to be. Okay. And, but you have, you have several from, I think, from Juilliard School in New York. Yeah, this year we do. Can you can you talk a little bit about the who's here? I know you kind of keep it under wraps. You don't I really do. say, but so, but now the program is out. So I have a copy <laughs> of the program. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I won't say which ensemble and what they're going to be playing, but I can say that they're very enthusiastic and the quality is excellent. But it's not just the Juilliard School. I mean, I I would say that there are some surprising institutions who did exceptionally well this year. Sorry, I should say institutions who did um, exceptionally this year. So and you have an entry from Canada this year, so it's an international festival. We this do, year. yeah. Well done, that's yeah. awesome. Very exciting. <laughs> so each ensemble plays twenty minutes, um, but it says in your program after the first five to six minutes, the judges may stop the ensemble and conduct the rest of the program. What does that's that right. mean, and why are they allowed right. to do that? So. Basically, we wanted to give the ensembles a chance to warm up. And it's not really fair for the judges to uh, decide in the first two, three minutes. Um, Honestly, it does need to be good, those first two, three minutes, to keep the judges' interest to listen to all five, six minutes. But the entire program is, in fact, oftentimes more than 30 minutes. Um, There are some ensembles that will be coming in with even 50 minutes of music. And so... In interest of covering as much repertoire as possible, after five, six minutes, we have a pretty good idea of how this, this ensemble is going to perform this particular style of work. So let's move on to another, is the idea. Okay, so the judges have the music in front of them, they That's see right. what the repertoire is, and then they can choose which one they want to listen to. That's right. So Dr. Yang, as a judge, what are you listening for? Because I mean, I'm sure every ensemble is absolutely fantastic. What do you hear that I or the general public don't hear? What are you looking for? Mm. 
I, I think I personally will respect um, players who, well, first of all, you know, there are traditions of, of playing repertory, right? So that to to fulfill a kind of traditional expectation. But I um, would like to hear point of view, personal takes on, you know, these are minute artistic choices, timing, um, the kind of o- overall structure and shape. Um, and, you know, also... Mm, communication mm-hmm. and since it's an ensemble com, you know uh, it's important that they are talking to each other they are um, communicating at the same time with the listener so it's a uh, it's it's it will be hard to describe but I think uh, one knows it when in the presence of good playing of uh, artistic playing I think that would shine is there is there a fine line between interpretation and overdoing it? Can you over embellish something? And is that is that a is that a negative? Well, that's uh, what I was saying. The first thing, you know, there there are traditions of playing certain composers in certain pieces. So um, that is to be respected, not necessarily um, an, an ob- obliging standard. But uh, I think using that as a as a kind of reference, I think one would know what, as you say, over overshooting and right. and uh, and again, yeah, it, you correctly point out it's a fine line. So to have personality, but uh, um, not be vulgar. I guess. Right. <laughs> no, don't show your vulgar personality. Right. <laughs> know where the edges, know where the limits are. Yeah. And are you also judging, basing your judging decision on their choice of repertoire? Um. I, I suppose a repertoire that suits the player and repertoire that suits the occasion and repertoire that suits the time at which it's, it's played. Because you spoke last night uh, in your recital, you said this is a slightly unusual selection of work to put them together to have Brahms and Schumann, but then you explained why and you gave us some detail on mm-hmm. the motifs and the textual components and the formal components. So when you're looking at some of the repertoires, are you assessing them in the same way that you're assessing your own structure of your repertoire and do they get a chance to explain why they've chosen those particular works no they best do their explanation in their performance (laughs) plainly put (laughs) well because um for example we will have saxophone quartets coming in with transcriptions of Dvorak string quartet when we began uh, hosting saxophone uh, quartets Judges were turning to each other. They did not know what to do with this, but the quality was excellent. And, I mean, speaking of tradition, they kept it within the style of Dvorak. So, um, actually, that ensemble moved forward. So, I don't know. It really <laughs> depends. But they don't. there's not a little part where they get to do the speaking and say, well, you know, we no, chose Brahms no. and Schumann because... We speak with music. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's good. I remember working with a, a visual artist judge on, on, a, on a visual arts show and um, sometimes people would say, well, make sure the judge knows what the title of my work is. But I had right. judges that said, no, no, no. If, if they want to mm. write me a story, then they should be in the world of literature. They should tell their story with their visual arts. So you're saying mm. the same thing, that it's the music that is telling the story, not, um, not the words that go with it. If they have to over-explain it, then maybe they've chosen the wrong pieces. Well, <laughs> I think it also becomes not exactly a chamber music competition. I mean, that, then we're talking about a whole production, like a presentation within another you know, concert series or something. Right. I think then it would be very interesting. But the chamber music competition is very specific to 
uh, judging what's being performed musically and not verbally. So right. unless, of course, speaking is part of the whole musical presentation. I read that you both had studied with the renowned Russian pianist Arkady Aronoff, mm. and he mentioned something that I had never thought about before, but that a composer's urtext is the gospel for musicians. So tell us a little bit what an urtext is, because I didn't know what this was, and whether that is part of what you're thinking about when you're, when you're looking at the entrance. Mm-hmm. Who wants to explain an urtext? I mean, it, I know Aronoff since I was a young uh, person and uh, so I remember once he was uh, very unhappy in his smiling way saying what this uh, this score that you brought in I mean there's a problem with what I played as a young person you know uh, the source material was important being that we're talking about edition differences right the editorial choices that um, plainly put there are better editions than there are not so better editions and that in turn affects you know, their performance choices. So I guess that's where I stand, as I understand, uh, choosing good urtexts. Um, what's the other second one? Um, w- whether when you are uh, assessing somebody's performance, whether you're thinking about what edition of the music they're playing to. So an urtext is really how the composer originally wrote it. And what I hadn't thought about was that, you know, over decades or centuries, mm-hmm. people add embellishments, you know, publishers change things a little bit, other mm-hmm. performers come along. And so you may have what seems like a very standard piece of classical mm-hmm. music, but really, unless you're reading it from the yeah. urtext, the original composition by the composer, it may have multiple changes that were never the composer's original intent. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I'm actually thinking about Schumann, for example. I mean, Clara Schumann was really a first-hand editor, you know, for all of his works. So, you know, where is the division between the Schumann composer and Clara Schumann, you know, his editor? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think... I don't know if this answers the questions, but I think whenever we're given a piece of music, we're always trying to look into the composer's soul and intent and what he or she uh, was trying to say through the music. And so we, we're constantly trying to dig into the emotion behind what's given to us in a piece of sheet music. So, yeah, it's a fascinating process, I have to say. Yeah, I'd, I'd never thought about that before, that, that um, what seems to be so standard it exists in multiple mm-hmm. versions, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. then I, and then that's one of the choices that, as a musician, you have to make is which of those versions are you going to mm. uh, learn. Yeah. How, I mean, you played last night a whole. Of, I guess you do this all the time. You don't have any music in front of you. Everything is in your head. Mm. H- how much music do you know? Like, how many pieces can you just, you know, rattle off? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> What? If I have a dollar for each note, I'm a pretty wealthy person. But <laughs> but uh, I don't get a dollar for each note. But no, I, I you know I think it, this is uh, uh, things that I learned uh, that you know if I find myself really uh, you know going back to when I learned stuff that's young, when I was younger and things I really studied and things I really looked, um, then it comes back. No problem, um, and there, there, you know, face it, there are things that I had to learn on the go and faster, and those things, you know, may return at a different rate. But, but, um, but there are a few things I, 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 I could, I could toss off when the occasion calls for. Do you feel like you chose the piano, or the piano chose you? Was it always the piano? Did it just call to life? you? Yeah. Do you play other instruments? 
Um, not right now. Piano. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have? A, do, would you like to play other instruments? I, I play one piece on the cello. And I'm very happy with that. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, I I don't wish to play at this moment. But I love to hear mm. how other instruments are played, and and I love to I love to work with how you know uh, in in German music setting and in in some more uh, adventurous setting as you mentioned right. with, with you know cross disciplinary things so um, and I chose piano because <laughs> I, <didn't show> piano. <laughs> piano. I, I have a frivolous question for you so whenever I am watching a piece a classical pianist yeah, they're very animated and and, and men because of the way they're dressed I always notice their socks so I wondered whether you carefully choose your socks before a performance because last night you were wearing blue and black striped socks because you just see it's kind of this little flash of color at the bottom of the person's foot you know you're dressed in black or dark colors and then there are the socks and your feet are you know your hands are so animated and so I always notice a piano player's socks I, okay, actually, um, I, we were talking in the car, Ayako and I, uh, about shopping. Uh, <laughs> I shop very simply. I, I know what I like. So all my things, I mean, I, 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 I don't necessarily think about it when I'm putting stuff on, but I think about it at the point of purchase. So everything more or less, I, you know, it's black and blue and gray. So <laughs> if I reach in, something's got to go. Well, I'm <laughs> noticing your socks. <laughs> As well as the music, but you know the socks. So let's see. We have a, we have a minute left. Ayako, um, give us a little bit of a rundown on what people can see this weekend. What are some of the highlights coming up over the next three well, days? Well, tonight you can enjoy Laura Saint John with the huge program of Beethoven's Kreuzer, Ravel's Nada. But I think you'll really enjoy the new Charyashin Rhapsody, which is absolutely just. Amazing, and that's at First Baptist Church. That's right. Yeah, and okay. tomorrow we have the uh, Plowman semifinals. We have the fifteen uh, chamber ensembles performing from nine thirty. We have a lunch break, and it will end five or five thirty. And then on Sunday at the Misery Theater, we'll be showcasing the t- top five ensembles. And there you get to vote for the audience prize. There will be a reception after the um, performances while the judges deliberate. And be sure to stick around for the award ceremony. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, Dr. Wait, Yang, you show me his, uh, his uh, black and red stripy socks. <laughs> Stripes. Uh. <laughs> and then on Monday you, at 12 o'clock, you have oh, a yes, final performance you. by Dale Clevenger. <laughs> yes, that's at, right. Back at First so Baptist Church. Dale Clevenger, I'm s- super excited about. I mean, he has a 47-year career as the principal horn of the Chicago Symphony. That's phenomenal. That's amazing. <laughs> So uh, we have the huge privilege of having, I actually talked him into it, um, of having him give a lecture recital. And I, I'm sure it's going to be a beautiful concert. And that's at midday. Yes. yes. Because <laughs> he has a plane to catch in the afternoon. So that's we have, right. to you have to get him in early. Hours a little bit earlier. <laughs> so there's a lot going on. And you can find everything. You have a great website, plowmancompetition.org. You can go there and you can see all the events that are happening over the next three days. And some of the events are like $5, I think it is uh, suggested amount to go and see the semi-finals. The finals are a little bit more expensive um, mm-hmm. and you can get tickets on the door for all of the events so That's you don't right. have to make uh, any plans in advance. You can just turn up on
on the day and, and buy the tickets. Thank you so much to Ayako so Suruta and Wei Yi Yang. Um, Ayako is the Artistic Director for the Plowman Chamber Music Competition and Festival and Dr. Wei Yi Yang is one of this year's judges and an amazing pianist. Unfortunately, we won't get to hear you play again. I think last night was the only time you were playing. Well, I was there, so... <laughs> Good job, Thank me. You for <laughs> so you can find, as I said, a full schedule of all the events that are taking place over the next three days at plowmancompetition.org. I wish you all the best for the festival, and I hope to be Thank there you. tonight to hear Lara St. John and your oh, husband, wonderful. Peter Miyamoto, playing on the piano. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Dan. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Okay, so the annual Plowman Chamber Music Competition, a festival kicked off last night and continues all weekend. Tonight, the violinist Lara St. John plays in recital with pianist Peter Miyamoto with a program of Beethoven, Ravel, Bartok and Kennedy. Their performance will be at First Baptist Church starting at 7pm. Tickets are $20 or $10 for students and may be purchased at the door. In Jefferson City, Scene One Theatre presents Silent Sky, a play by Lauren Gunderson, which centres around the untold but true stories of female astronomers at the Harvard College Observatory at the beginning of the 20th century. The play starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow and continues next weekend and tickets are $15. Also in Jefferson City and for one night only, the Sevens Ensemble performs the Great American Songbook at the Miller Performing Arts Centre. The show starts at 7.30 tonight and tickets are $20. And at Rose Music Hall, the postponed from January Missouri Stomp Fest with the K Brothers and the Ben Miller Band starts at 9pm tonight and tickets are $10. Tomorrow, the Plowman Competition semi-finals are at First Baptist Church from 9.30 till 5, and tickets are $10. Saturday evening, poet Danny Kane will be at the Skylark Bookshop to read from his new book of poetry called Continental Breakfast, a humorous book exploring the effect of mass, communi- mass commercialism on identity, love, religion, and the American landscape. Danny's talk starts at 7, and it is free to attend. And at the Blue Note on Saturday night, it is the postponed from January Missouri Hip Hop Fest, hosted by Steady P with Van Ghost and other special guests. Their show starts at 9 and tickets are $7. On Sunday, the Plowman competition moves to the Missouri Theatre for the finals and award ceremony. A concert starts at 1.30 and tickets are $35 or $25 for students. The final event in the Plowman Festival B will be at the First Baptist Church at 12pm on Monday with horn player Dale Clevenger and pianist Natalia Bolshakova playing a recital of Mahler, Strauss and Mozart. Tickets for that show are $20 or 10 for students. On Tuesday, you can see Flights of Fancy with Jay and Leslie's Laughing Matters at the Daniel Boone Regional Library in the Children's Program Room. Jay and Leslie Cady are award-winning professional entertainers and students of famed mime Marcel Marceau. They will have two performances in Columbia on Tuesday, one at two and another at six, and will also be performing on Wednesday at Southern Boone County Public Library at 10, at Holt Summer Public Library at two, and finally at Callaway County Public Library at 5.30. On Wednesday evening, the Unbound Book Club will be discussing Everyone Knows You Go Home by Natalia Sylvester, winner of the International Latino Book Award. That conversation will be from 6 till 7.30 at Skylark Bookshop. And at Rose Music Hall, Nashville artist Liz Cooper and the Stampede will be on stage at 8pm for a $12 entrance fee. Next Thursday is opening night for Capital City Productions' version of the Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice 1970 rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. The musical will run for three weekends.
weekends and the dinner theatre doors open at six. Tickets for dinner and the show are $38. At Skylock Bookshop, author Annie Ward will talk about her new thriller, Beautiful Bad. Her, start, her talk starts at 6pm next Thursday and is free to attend. There is a full night of rock next Thursday at Rose Music Hall with LA Rockers, Smile Empty Soul, along with September Morning, Baltimore's Rise Among Rivals and Columbia's own Dark Below. That concert starts at 8 and tickets are $15. And finally, over at the Blue Note next Thursday, there is a Princess Bride audience participation event. Now, I have to admit, I have never seen the Princess Bride, so this is going to be largely over my head. But the evening will include free handouts, including inflatable swords, a costume contest with prizes, a guest the next line audience participation component, and themed drink specials. It all starts at 8pm and it'll cost you $10 to get in. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.